E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Dominique Tornex, the CEO of DM, the wine closure company based in the south of France. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for being here. When did you develop an interest in engineering? Well, I was always being interested in the field of biology, food industry, etc. So I decided to follow that route and go to the University of Montpellier, you know, where there is a, an agronomic school, engineering school, and I became a food processing engineer. So what is that? I mean, what does a food processing engineer do? The food process engineers take care about equipment, processing food in the best way, most efficient way, obviously, and respecting the raw materials. You work on machinery, automation. You also think about new ways of processing the raw materials to get the best food you can. And one of the challenges when you are processing food is to make sure that you don't damage the food itself. You don't damage the proteins, the vitamins, which are in it. And the challenge is to preserve food against contamination. So it's uh, processing and packaging food up to the consumer and offering them the best preserved food. It's interesting that you phrase it that way because I've always thought of wine as that, as a way of preserving grape juice for multiple winters. Of course, and the rule of the packaging is very important. We know that to produce wine, you need at least, let's say, two years, three years, even more. But let's say you have the year where the grapes are growing, then you harvest, then you are processing and producing the wine. Then you may put them into barrels, so it's another year, Why sometimes more years, and then you bottle the wine. And uh, the premium, super premium wines usually will be preserved in the bottle for decades, up to decades, I would say. And we know that the wine will improve during these uh, preservation. So it's important to have the right packaging, I would say. So the right bottle, obviously, but also the right closure. Closure is in contact with the wine. It's one of the material which will be in contact with the wine for a lot of time much more than any other. But you didn't start enclosures. You worked for Mars for a No, long. exactly. Yeah. As a food uh, processing engineer, I started in, in Mars Incorporated. I worked there for more than 12 years. And then I moved to another industry, 
cosmetic Yves Rocher company. And I joined the company Diam, which was not having that name at that time, in 2003. And you weren't originally the CEO, you were more like an engineer, right? Yeah, originally when I joined the company, I joined as an industrial director, so taking care about all the operations, meaning production, logistics, purchase, and obviously engineering, doing investments. And the reason why I came is that uh, the company was having a very nice patent, interesting patent, using supercritical CO2, so that means that you use the gas, the CO2, the carbon dioxide, as a solvent. And as a solvent, you can extract things. So there is a huge application in the food industry for supercritical CO2, which is decaffeination of coffee. The first company using that, well, the American company Maxwell, who patented the application in the 50s. And you have also another big application, which is the extraction of a specific protein, which gives a bitterness to the beer, the lupulin from hops, which is also using supercritical CO2. And the company I joined in 2003 had some work done with a research institute in France, and they made trials to use the CO2 as a solvent on cork. So why is that bizarre application? Well, we know that cork, it's a natural piece of wood. It's a piece of bark. And sometimes there are a lot of volatiles, so the small compounds which can come out from the cork and then could be released into the wine and give half flavors on the wine. So the idea was to try to use that solvent, the CO2, to clean, to wash and extract the volatiles from cork. And I found that idea interesting and exciting. I, uh, I always loved to do new projects, investment, trying new ideas taking ideas from in one industry and shift it to another industry. You know, so in the end, this is what we did. We used a technology which was applied in an industry, and we thought that we could use it on cork. We did specific applications, uh, fixing different process parameters, and we found that it was very efficient to clean cork. So whose innovation was that at DM? Who said, like, oh, maybe cork? To be fair, I don't know exactly when the idea came up, but we know that in the 90s, because there was so much issues with the cork closure, a lot of cork taint due to a specific molecule called trichloroanisole, TCA, there were a lot of work ongoing in different laboratories worldwide, mainly in Europe, work to try to measure, to quantify these molecules which were inside the cork. And one of those technology was to use CO2 to extract it and to then to be capable to measure, to quantify it with a gas chromatography machine. So ideas were already running there. And we know that in the chemistry and in the green chemistry, CO2, when it is at supercritical state, which means under pressure with some temperature, not so very much, but above 37 degrees Celsius, CO2 start to have the properties of a solvent, so like water, but also the property of gas, which means that supercritical CO2 can then penetrate into the raw materials to extract certain compounds. That's the way it, it works for coffee beans 
And that's the way ideas were put on the table by some scientists to do it on cork. And the first trials failed, actually, because CO2 is supercritical when you're above 73 bars, so it's a lot. That's pressure? Yeah, that's pressure, yeah. So it's 70 times the atmospheric pressure, so you would weigh 70 times more <laughs> if you were under 70 bars pressure. It's a lot. And cork, you know, is a very soft material. Cork is made of submarine, so you have a sort of honeycomb structure. And when you pressurize it, it works like a spring. It reduces in size, and you can have also some deformation, especially at 70 bars. So the cork doesn't come back at its initial shape, and so the cork is damaged. So this is why the first trials failed. And the idea of my company, and I was part of that team, was to say, well, instead of working on a cork piece that has been punched from the bark, let's try to work on cork granules. Oh, I see. Because on cork granules, you get rid of the woody part, which is in each piece of cork. You know, a bark of cork is not 100% submarine. You have a part which is wood, lignin. You have sometimes stones, little pieces of particles, whatever. You may have some insects as well. So uh, you need to clean that part. And we said, well, let's use just the submarine part. And to get the submarine, well, we send the bark into a milling facility. So mainly grinding wheat, I would say, corn. And we were grinding that way, the cork bark, reducing them in small pieces, a few millimeters, and then sift what we was getting. And because cork... The submarine part is lighter than the lignin part. We could do a densimetric separation, meaning that the heavy part was separated, split it from the light part, and we just kept the light part, which is the part with the submarine. And that part, that granules, went into the autoclave where we were pressurizing with CO2, and it works extremely well. We also had to add some water as what we call a co-solvent. So we use demineralized water, nothing else, at a certain percentage. And the challenge was to determine that percentage, because if you put too much water, the process efficiency goes down very quickly. And if you don't put enough water, you are not able to extract also all the volatiles. So it's a combination between the CO2 and the water that helps to get these real efficient extraction of specific compounds. And one of those is the famous TCA, which gives cork taint. And what would give rise to TCA? What causes it to be there in the first place? The TCA in the first place, well, it's a residues from microorganisms who are living, eating all the components where you find chlorine. So, you know, in the atmosphere, you can have it. Sometimes you have it in some insecticides. You can have chlorine as a pollutant in the forest. And the microorganisms are living from that. And they are transforming it into TCA. So it's a scrap from these little microorganisms, which are in the field, in the air. 
It's uh, very similar, you know, the TCA. You can also detect it when you have a house that has been closed for several weeks or months. For example, a house that where you go on in summertime is closed during winter. And when you open the house, you said, oh, it smells like a closed house. And this means that some molecules have been produced and they are in the atmosphere, floating in the atmosphere, and one of those can be the TCA. So it's um, this musty smell. So can you tell that it's there before you shoot the CO2 into it or no? Yes, it's possible because as a volatile compound, if you soak the bark or the cork, the piece of cork the, into water for, let's say, a day, you warm it up, not very much, but a little bit. Usually, you have those volatiles migrating into the liquid. And if you do what we call a wine simulant, so let's say you put 12%, 14% alcohol with water, you warm it up just to accelerate the transfer, and then you can have migration of this TCA. And the way we are measuring TCA into cork is that way. So we take then that liquid, we send it into a gas chromatography machine, and that is capable to detect level. Now, one of the challenge of these molecules is that we are speaking about a threshold which is in PPT, part per trillion, meaning that you have one molecule, one single molecule into an Olympic pool full of water that is the proportion. So we are so sensitive as human body to TCA that you don't need very much quantities to detect it. And that's the key point, is you need to get rid completely of those traces of TCA to make sure that the cork is clean. And the way TCA is in cork is actually randomized. Sometimes in a piece of bark, let's say, which is 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters square, you may have one place where you can find TCA at above threshold, and all the other places where there is no TCA. Why? Because the microorganisms are not everywhere, and they may have produced this TCA in a specific part. So one of the biggest issues for the cork closure industry in the 90s was that even by sampling cork, you were never sure that your lot was clean enough. And the industry continues to sample a lot. They have done a lot of improvement in the very last decades in order to reduce the risk, but they are not able to get rid of it totally. The most recent technology are trying to use the electronic detection nose to detect very low quantities. But the challenge is that quantities are so low, again, it's below one part per trillion. It's so low that most of the electric nose that are in the industry are not capable to detect such low level. Usually they are in part per billion, so thousand times more. And those machines are not 100% reliable. So the best way in the end, you can sort, you can sort, 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 and take out all the contaminated parts. In the end, the best way is to clean it, to send it into a washing machine, you know, into a laundry, and you're sure that everything is clean and washed. If I bought a shirt at the mall, what your company is essentially doing is washing it before I wear it, whether it's already clean or not. 
You just wash everything. Yeah, exactly. And remember that sometimes in the new clothes, you may have some additives, you know, to make it shining, etc. So it's better to wash it anyway, <laughs> because you're sure that your clothes is really nice and clean the first time you're using it. So it's the same way. There is not only one molecule which is volatile. After we marketed and we did the first facility and we industrialized the process, we took some of those extracted samples and we sent them into different laboratories to try to understand what was in it. And we discovered we were able to determine more than 150 molecules. Obviously, they are not all smelling something. Most of them don't have any impact. But we found that about 15 of those could have an impact into the wine because they could be above the threshold level that our body is capable to detect. I see. So because we as humans are so sensitive to TCA, we notice it's there. However, there might be 150 other things that we would never notice just because our threshold isn't the same as it being present. Correct. There are some molecules which the man will detect at low level, some others are at extremely low level, and some others are at very high level. Obviously, our nose is totally different, for example, from a a dog. The dog has a much lower threshold, so they are able to detect. We know that we are using dogs to detect drugs. We are not capable to sniff drugs at a low level, so this is why we use dogs. In our case, we are decided to clean the cork to get rid of those volatiles, and we noticed later on that uh, most of the winemakers using our closure DM claim that. In the end, it's not only TCA. It's also something else because uh, wine is fresher, as I say. When I'm using jam, if I compare to any other closure, cork closure, the wine is fresher. It has not changed. Obviously, the aromatic profile can have an evolution, but it's not influenced positively or negatively by the closure. We consider jam that closure must be neutral as much as possible. So what are the other 15 things? What are the other things that are there that are perceptible? I don't know them all by memory, but I can give you one molecule, which is called sesquiterpen, which is like when you wash a floor, you use a piece of cloth. And these, you can have such smell. You have also another molecule called one octel free oil, they never gave another name, so it's a chemical name. And it's a mushroom smell. And these molecules actually is also used in the food industry to add smell and flavor to mushroomy sauces. We also detected some level of vanillas. The problem is that you never master the quantities. Sometimes you may have a little bit and sometimes none. So you have a different wine. And this is, comes also to one of the performance of such a closure. Most of the winemaker says, not only wine is fresh, but also I have consistency from one bottle to the other. And I don't have the variation that I may have with other closure. So what you're saying is, theoretically, I could have a, a regular cork, not from DM, put it in my wine, and even though my wine was all stainless steel or concrete and stainless with no oak, I might sense something that would be similar to the vanilla taste in an oak and say like, oh, I think this is an oaked wine. And then the winemaker might say, no, I didn't use any oak. I would not 
say that we can go up to that level to be fair because the quantities of vanilla that could migrate from a piece of cork are so low to be fair that they may influence a little bit but I'm not sure that they will be comparable to a barrel so to be fair we are not at that level but in a way yes you're right what is sure is that when you take a piece of cork which has not been super critically cleaned you have the risk to have migration of some molecules which are not only TCA, but something else, giving off flavors or giving different sensory perception for the winemaker or the sommelier who are drinking the wines. And we know that with extremely low level of TCA in a cork, below 0.5 nanograms, so below half a PPT, half a part per trillion, you may have sometime the feeling that the wine is not totally clean. It's a little bit dirty. It's not neat. You don't know what it is. And we know that can be a little bit quantity of TCA, but it can also be other volatiles. Is that because it's only interacting with 750 milliliters of liquid? If instead of 750 milliliters of liquid under the same size cork, if I had 10 times that, would the perception in the liquid be less because of that? Correct. That's right. For example, if you take a half-size bottle, the 375 milliliter, the risk of tainting the wine is higher. Because a lot of times when I interview people, say, from the Rhone Valley, they tell me, well, into the 1920s and 1930s, we used to sell wine in barrel and not in bottle, maybe to the local cafe. And I think we often think, well, why would they do that? Because there's so much more chance of it being faulty from oxidation as people remove the wine from the barrel. But what you're maybe implying is that if I were to drink wine out of barrel, the chance that I would taste a corked wine would be less. Well, sometimes you can have traces of TCA in barrels. It happens. In the cooperage itself. In the cooperage mean. itself. So you need to be careful as well. The cooperage industry knows that issue and they, they know how to address it because they are checking every pieces of cooper from the barrel. And it's easy because the number is low. In the case of cork, because we are speaking about billion, it would be very difficult to make sure that we are 100% clean. And remember that a cork has a diameter of an inch or so. And when you are putting inside a bottle, you are pressing the cork. You are reducing the diameter. And then with a specific tool, you are pushing the cork inside the bottle bore. So by pushing the cork, you tend to extract to push hair, which is inside the cork, and the volatiles. And the part which is just above the bottle bore, as soon as you're entering in the, in the bottle, there is some gas that goes inside the bottle. You mentioned a very interesting point, which is oxidation. And it's true that in barrels, it's one of the key questions is make sure you don't have too much oxidation. Well, with the closure, it's the same challenge. And here, it's not anymore about cork tent. It's not anymore about cleaning the, the cork granules. It's about the structure of the cork itself. When you, start, you produce your cork and you punch it from a piece of bark, every cork will be different from one to the other. And if you start to go with an X-ray machine and go inside the structure and see how it, how it works, look at each cork, you will find that they are all different. And if you take the best looking cork from a piece of bark, it's the small part. 
of those cork. They are called flor, like flower. So the best looking cork. The business says those cork are the best. They are less contaminated. They are very well structured. Well, the reality is that when you measure the OTR, oxygen transfer ratio of this cork, 60% of those are very tight, which is good, very constant, which is perfect. But 40 of those, 40% of those, may have very, very high OTR level, meaning that your wine will be different. Better or worse, that's not the question. It will be different. And the reason of the success of Diam in Burgundy comes from the fact that as we start from a piece of granule and then we use a food-compatible polymer to recombine the cork, we have a very constant and high consistency of the cork with no holes, no part which can be denser or lighter. Each cork has the same. And we are able to provide different levels of OTR, different levels of density, different levels of cork granule sizes, etc. We offer different recipes, different solutions. And sometimes you need a cork which lets go through a little bit more oxygen, and sometimes you need a tight closure. White Chardonnay or Burgundy, you know, Primox issue, when they started to use Diam, we said, use the most dense one, the one which is the lowest OTR level, and it works. And there are other wines which tend to be reductive. Those wines would need a cork closure that lets a little bit more oxygen go through the structure, so with higher OTR. So this was the big step ahead of Diam. The reason of the success of that closure remember that 2 billion bottles per year are using Diam, was no taint. But today, the real advantage is obviously still the fact that the cork is clean, but it's mostly that we are offering different OTR levels. So what Diam did is that from a piece of cork, mostly considered as a commodity, to close a bottle of wine, it became a winemaking tool, meaning that the winemaker, we offer him a different range of solutions. It's not only one Diam closure, it's different closure under the brand Diam, a more tight closure or a more open closure. You have a different sensorial profile of your wine. For the winemaker, this is a new tool. It helps him to decide what sort of profile he would wish for his customer after a guard of five years, 10 years, 30 years, whatever the time will be. But it sounds like you're discussing two different parts of a cork because what I envision as the part that would be interacting with the wine that might give it TCA would be the bottom part of the cork. And then what I imagine being the factor related to oxidation would be the side of the cork. Is that true or? Uh, It's a little bit more complex. It's true, but partially true. First thing is that TCA can move inside the structure from anywhere. It's a very light molecule. It goes through everything so light. So if you have a part inside the cork structure where you have a high level of TCA, even though it's not in contact with the wine, 
you may have the risk, especially if you keep the wine for 10 years, 15 years, that once some molecules may migrate into the wine. Oxygen now. There are two ways to get oxygen inside the wine. First is from the sides, and secondly, through the cork itself. From the sides, why? Because here we come to a question which is the mechanical memory of the cork. You know, if you take a spring, whatever the spring is, if you move it up and down, and you do it for hours, months, years, after a while, your spring will lose part of his release, elastic return. It's what we call mechanical fatigue. Uh, aircraft industry perfectly knows that. And they are able to predict how long would a plane work, 40 years, 50 years. Uh, you know, when you take a plane, when the plane is flying and at 10,000 feet or 20,000 feet high, you have a lot of vibration. So the structure is under pressure, under mechanical constraint continuously, and there is progressively a mechanical fatigue. It is exactly the same with a piece of cork. And we know that cork has some very good mechanical memory. Our facility is in the south of France, in Perpignan, and Perpignan is not very far from Toulouse, where Airbus industry uh, is. And so there are a lot of little companies working in mechanics, and we met one of those, which offered us a specific test to do accelerated aging of the cork. And with a specific law, which is called Arrhenius law, which is a mathematical law, we can deduct how long would be the mechanical memory of the cork, the mechanical release, if the wine was kept into a cave at 14 degrees Celsius. And we know that there can be differences. And sometimes a good traditional punch cork may have a mechanical memory which will keep the closure tight for 30 years, and sometimes it goes down to five years, three years. It's varying because of the variation of nature. When you are reducing those bark into granules and just keep the submarine part, which is the flexible part, and then you gather all these particles together, in proportion you are increasing the quantity of submarine, and you can get higher elastic returns. And as soon as you get a higher elastic return, you get less risk of having oxygen flowing between the bottle bore and the cork side. Uh, we know that there are alternative closure in the market. One of those is using polyethylene. So it's a synthetic cork. And polyethylene is also having an alveolic structure, some elasticity. But it is known that after a few years, the cork itself gets tougher. Becomes like a plug. Yeah, exactly. And it loses part of its elasticity and some oxygen can go through. It's one of the big issues that synthetic cork is having is that you can keep your wine one a year, two years, but then you know that there are some risk of oxidation. And that's why most of the wineries are now knowing that and they say, well, we use synthetic because it's cheap, but just on cheap wine with highly rotated says. Now, with a micro-agglomerated structure, as we call it, like DM, we can give 
a commitment on these elasticity. And that's why we were able to market Diam 3 for three to five years, Diam 5 to up to seven, eight years, Diam 10, Diam 30, more than 30 years. Does the temperature in which the bottles are stored in affect that elasticity? Correct, yeah. Remember that when you are transporting a bottle in a container, shipping through the Pacific from United States or Europe to Asia, sometimes you can have temperature into the container which can go up to 60 degrees Celsius. This accelerates the aging of the cork. If the wine is supporting oxygen, and some of the wine are consuming a lot of oxygen, I mean, for example, highly tannic wines, they can accept more oxygen than white wines, which can be very sensitive to oxidation. To be fair, you don't always damage the wine, but for sure you will have different wines because some of the cork may have been aged too quickly because of the temperature. So if I wanted to increase elastic return, I might keep my cellar colder? I mean, once it gets to me. Oh, that's for sure. You would never go below freezing, huh? obviously. But for sure, a 14 to 16 degrees is a correct temperature. And this is where the cork is lasting the longer time. Clearly, low temperature is also reducing the risk of oxidation of your wine by itself because you have lower temperature. Usually, when you increase temperature, it, mechanical reactions accelerate. When you reduce the temperature, it reduces the mechanical reactions. So heat acts as a catalyst. Yeah, in a way, yeah. And so that makes the reactions happen faster. Exactly. And one of those reactions is slow oxidation. One of those reactions are slow oxidation, that's it. Sometimes are, we want to have them, and sometimes we do not. This is why the choice of the closure itself is important. Now, we, we spoke about the risk of oxygen going from the side of the cork, and this is one of the highest risks, it's true. But you also have always a little bit quantity going through the cork. If you take a denser cork, where you make sure that the quantity of polymer gathering all the cork particles will reduce the potential presence of holes, you will reduce the quantity of gas inside the cork. So you will reject less oxygen in the structure because your structure is denser. So this is one part of the OTR. And there is also the oxygen transfer, so regular transfer or oxygen through the cork structure. It's a low quantity. It can be higher in the beginning and progressively be reduced, but it's still existing. So are there other big concerns? It seems to me the two big concerns are rate of oxygen transfer and TCA. When you deal in closures, is there another concern that you have to worry about? Yes, a third one, which is linked to the aging of the cork itself. You know, most of the premium wines will be kept in a cave laid down. The wine will be in contact with the cork. And when you open a bottle which has been stored for decades, very often you look at the cork, usually because they are so old. At that time, they were nearly only a plain punch cork. You will see that wine often has traveled into the cork structure itself. The cork is actually dyed by the wine, especially if it's red wine, you will see it. The cork has sucked 
part of the wine inside the structure. By doing that, the cork is weakening, is getting softer, like a sponge in a way, and it loses elasticity. So the risk of oxidation increases a lot. To avoid that, there are solutions. You need to avoid wine leaking inside the cork structure. Again, when you are producing a microstructured cork like Diam, we developed a specific little polymer, which is called a microsphere, and which will fill the possible holes which can be in between the cork particles. And these avoids wine going inside the cork structure. So that's a major difference with the traditional punch cork, because in a plain cork, even though the best-looking cork are having less woody part, where you have a woody part, you have a, a difference of pressure, and wine can be absorbed inside and goes through the woody part inside the cork structure. So if there's a vein on the side of the cork, exactly, the wine might go through there. That's right. That's kind of a slide to get out. Somewhere, yeah. And you're saying that that doesn't happen with DM? That doesn't because we thought about that to avoid that issue. And we discovered that application that was actually patented before DM. Now the patent is not more valid because it's more than 20 years. And other companies in the industry, in the cork industry, are using that system because it's really helping to avoid also the exchange between the wine and the cork closure. So to go back to TCA for a minute, is there just a single type of TCA? Like say I had TCA from Cooperage or I had TCA from something else. Is it still always the same TCA or is there a family? TCA is one molecule, trichloroanisole, so it's always the same. But then you have other kind of molecules giving some smell, like the TECA, and the TE means tetra. So instead of three atoms of chlorine, you will have four. So tetrachloroanisole can give risk. Then you have TBA, tribromoanisole, which is also a little bit risky. So this is why when we measure after the process, where we clean the cork granules, we measure by sampling the potential presence of molecules. We not only measure TCA, we are also measuring TCA, TBE, TBA, TBA, etc. So there are several molecules which needs to be detected to make sure that those family of musty molecules will not be there anymore. So is there something that happened in the 20th century that made that family more prevalent in the atmosphere? The forest owners in the industry tend to say, yes, the pollution globally has increased, and so you have more chlorine in the forest. Another point also, we see big variation in the climate. And the cork forest, you know, they are mostly in Portugal, in Spain, northern Morocco, northern Algeria, a little bit in Italy and France. And so this is the west side of the Mediterranean area. And uh, it's an area which is pretty much influenced by Atlantic climate, which gives you a mild climate in winter and a warm climate, but not ultra-hot climate in summer. If you go on the east part of the Mediterranean Sea, I think about Lebanon, uh, Israel, etc., Egypt, winters can be very cold because you can have hair coming from Russia, Asia, and summer are extremely hot. 
So in the case of the western part, the cork trees were able to grow smoothly and regularly to that reason. But, but today what we see is that sometimes we have accidents in the climate, summer with fires because the weather is too hot, and this is not very good for the cork trees. And sometimes you have huge showers, water, and these unfortunately increases the risk for the future to have cork taint. You mentioned that there was a higher incidence of TCA seemingly in the 90s. And what would you attribute that to? People say that the level of TCA risk has increased at that time for two reasons. The first one is that we discovered the molecule. It was a Swiss scientist, I've forgotten his name, but he was able to determine what molecule it is. So when you are able to determine, then you start to measure because it means that labs are able to detect it. So obviously you see more. So whether we, there was more or not, it's a little bit difficult to answer, but for sure we were able to detect it. And secondly, the volume of wine, which is bottled, increases a lot. It still increases a lot. The wine consumption worldwide is growing by 1%, 2% yearly, on a yearly basis. Obviously, there are countries, I think, for example, about the United States, where the consumption is growing faster. But you know that in Europe, we were also starting from very high level where wine consumption is decreasing. So on average, this is the increase of wine consumption. But there is more and more wine which is bottled because it's a way to premiumize the wine. So you sell it also at a higher price. And the fact that you are bottling wine, you need more closure. And at a certain step in the 90s, 80s, the level of consumption of cork were very high. So every piece of cork was utilized and probably also the most contaminated part. So this also has increased the risk. But you don't think it's directly a manifestation of climate change? Not in the 90s. It was already probably having some influence, but it's more today. Today, yes, clearly we see that uh, climate change, the fact that sometimes you have very highly humid period and then very hot period, this increases the risk of cork taint. Remember also that harvest lasts two months during summertime, so you need the sap stopping inside the cork tree, and then you can you are able to extract the bark from the outer part of the tree. You can harvest around 10 to 12 times every nine years. It's like taking the jacket off. Exactly. You, the take tree. An, you exactly. don't cut it down. From the trunk, yeah. So you don't cut it down. The first harvest, you need to wait 40 years. And the first harvest, you don't use it for cork. You use it for the insulation industry, floor tile, etc. You need to wait another 10 years. So this is after 50 years, you can start to extract the cork to produce closure. That's interesting, because that sort of implies that if I said, well, climate change is affecting the cork industry, I'm going to plant a forest of trees somewhere else that's maybe more consistent, I would have to really get a jump on it, because it would take decades before I could actually give someone a cork from that forest. Yeah, and it's one of the key problems for the future, is to make sure that we are planting enough cork trees to renew them, because after 10 Harvest, cork is 150, 200 years old. Usually, cork doesn't produce anymore. And in this case, you can cut it, uh, make furniture or produce wood fire or whatever. But uh, it's uh, 
something that needs to be managed clearly. And it's pretty well managed, I would say, in Spain and Portugal because it's part of the culture. So say I took a cork out of a bottle from the 80s. Would I be able to look at that cork and have some indication that that was from a particularly old tree or a young tree? No. No, you don't see the difference. It's not possible. Sometimes I hear about references to bleaching corks or putting something on them to make them easier to get out of a bottle. And has that had any correlation with TCA? Bleaching means washing, usually. Bleaching is used to make sure that you don't have dust from the cork coming out. It also helps to clean a little bit the tannins, which are on the skin of the cork, which could migrate. And the industry, the traditional industry, is using sometimes dyeing agents to dye a little bit the cork so that the little defaults that are on the surface of the cork are hidden and then you can sell it at a higher price. I'm not really in favor, you can imagine, of such processes. It doesn't really have any impact on the structure itself of the cork, to be fair. Now, to make the cork sliding inside the bottle bore, you need something. Because if you take a raw cork, whatever it is, a diam cork, a traditional cork closure, you can put it inside the bottle, but you will never be able to extract it because it will stick against the bottle bore. So you need some paraffin or you need some silicone or you need something to slide it. So this process is called coating. Coating is always compulsory for any cork closure, including synthetic cork, because otherwise you are not able to extract. And the extraction force from a bottle bore depends on a lot of parameters, obviously the elastic return of the cork. And we use generally a combination of silicone and paraffin, which help us to have a more sliding effect. Are there historical developments in the history of cork that you had to emulate when you sort of reconstructed cork? The main generic principles are very similar. There are not big differences, to be fair. The only major difference is that we clean and then we are reshaping the cork with specific performances. It's more industrial, that's true. Sometimes people would say it's a bit less poetic. But, you know, premium wines and iconic wines, they are... There, because the winemaker made the wine, and important is the wine. It's not the closure itself or the bottle itself. One interesting thing is to see that there are still in this industry very conservative people believing that the traditional punch cork is bringing some specific positive smell to their wine. Less and less, to be fair, because quantities would be so low that they are far below threshold. And uh, I think it's part of the culture. You know, cork has been with bottles for decades, centuries, and so people believe that they should not move. But if we look at the glass itself, we know that there have been a lot of improvements in the way to produce bottles of glasses because um, at the beginning, certain Raw materials or certain molecules, heavy metals were there, and all, all these ponds have been eliminated, cancelled. And 
there is no specific reaction from the industry saying, I want to keep the very old-fashioned bowl. But in the case of Quark, it's still there a little bit. You mentioned it being a winemaking tool. So now that people want to often drink wines younger than they would have 80 years ago, is DM a part of that? i give you just a story. This is really uh, what we are experiencing. Uh, you know, in Bordeaux, every year they are releasing the wines and they are presenting the wines to the journalist. Well, we have a few clients asking for an IOTR closure for just that specific testing. And then they know that the, the wine will be bottled with a much tighter closure for the remaining volume that will be marketed in the business. So we now have those winemakers asking that. So is there a cost of production difference between a DM1 and a DM30? Like, does it cost you more or less to make? Yeah, there is. There are difference of cost due to the quantity of raw material that we're using. And also because we, for example, for a DM30, we are selecting specific cork having higher elastic return. I didn't mention that before, but there are some little differences according to origin of the cork. Not really geographic origin, it's more linked to where are the trees. If you are in a valley where you have a lot of wind and mild climate, the tree will grow smoothly and regularly, meaning that every year you will have a specific thickness added to the other, and the cork is very regular. Usually this cork is having standard elastic return, which is not high, not very low, but let's say a medium one. Now, if you go in an area where, for example, there is more water and so the tree will grow faster, in this case, you may have higher thickness, but then your cork has a very low elastic return because your honeycomb structure is, is bigger, you know, it's uh, wider. So you have elast less elasticity. Now, if you purchase cork from trees which are in mountains, where sometimes you have very hot climate or reverse very cold climate, then the growth is not so regular and you may have smaller honeycomb structure and you have much more elasticity. This is why, for example, we know that the cork from Catalonia, so the northeast of Spain, which is most in mountains, has a high elasticity. Cork from Sardinia as well, cork from Algeria, Morocco, Whereas cork from the Andalusia, south of Spain, or in Portugal, it's a cork with less elasticity. So uh, we measure the elastic return of the granules. We put them into a jar. We put a piston. We smash, and then we, we don't push anymore, and we just let... We measure how fast the piston will come back. And so we know that there are differences. And for a DM30, we will have to use a higher elastic quality than for jam free, for example. And also we, we may have some bigger size because we tend to have longer cork for long aging wines. This is mostly due to marketing reason. And it's also up to the winemaker to choose. Obviously, we also work on that part and we do a lot of work with different universities. We have done quite several studies, usually what the, the main standard study that we offer to run with scientists is to test different closure of the arm, uh, comparing with other cork closure, 
or, or the type of closure, and then do all the winemaking traditional analysis that are done, you know, residual SO2, level of oxidation, etc., that is done, and also sensorial testing every year or every two years. When you do that comparison or when someone else does that comparison for you, what do you find in general terms between not just cork closure, but also synthetics, like you mentioned, or glass or screw cap? First of all, you mentioned glass. You know, the glass, actually, the ceiling is a plastic part. So I would put the glass with synthetic. What we do see is that Diam has globally performances which are quite close to screw cap. The tight Diam, I mean, the low OTR Diam, meaning that they are closing well, protecting well, and they are consistent. The synthetic tend to age quickly. So sometimes after two years, we are starting to see that one can be oxidized. And one of the indicators to show that is a residual free SO2 that is into the wine. Before explaining what happens here, I would finish with traditional punch cork. Here you have a lot of variations. And it's very difficult to take a conclusion from a traditional punch cork because it's varying a lot. What we have demonstrated with the tight solution of the arm is that we are capable to reduce the SO2 level. And uh, we have demonstrated with the EFV of Bourbon, so in Burgundy, that we could reduce by 15 to 25% the level of added SO2 in the beginning. So I believe that one of the reasons why Burgundy premium wines, iconic wines, switch to Diam is for that reason as well. So in terms of that subject, in terms of Burgundy, one of the things that I've seen develop with the Premox problem is a lot more winemakers are employing reduction into their wines. And is that something you've encountered as well? And if those are clients of yours, have you had any conversations about that? It's true that Premox is not only closure, obviously. So I think we have to keep our place and there are a lot of options in terms of winemaking which will play an important role and try to be on the reduction part to avoid oxidation. Yes, this is one of the options. People sometimes told me, Diam is a bit reductive. And I said, yes, if you are using the tight, low OTR solution, yes, it's a little bit reductive. So... I'm very close to what you're saying. Uh, the tight solution is a little bit reductive. It's true. So if you are using such a tight solution on, let's say, a red wine, which doesn't necessarily need such a very tight solution, then you will need to aerate a lot your wine before drinking it. But if you're using a more open solution, then you can avoid that risk of reduction. So uh, we also have to progressively educate our customer, the winemakers, to use properly our tools. It's really brand new, to be fair, and well, it takes some time, but so we more and more explain that, and uh, the winemakers are discovering that they can choose. But I think the future is be able to predict the evolution of the wine according to the OTR level, and secondly, be able to have a specific recipe for each client. Why not tomorrow? 
define a specific recipe because we are playing on the proportion of the ingredients. We are not yet at that level, but we could clearly imagine that in the future this would be possible. So I'm not a chemist, and I know you're not a chemist either. You're an engineer. But what is reduction? What is that? Reduction is that you tend to have a specific profile of the wine, which gives you um, like artichoke flowers. So it's reduced. It's a specific molecule profile. It's a closed. There are some wines which prefer that. And oxidized, well, it's the reverse, you know, it's uh, oxygen has been uh, reacted with the tannins or with the different molecules of the wines and you get a uh, totally different profile. Uh, the final step of oxidation is vinegar, the extremely final step. Here you have a total oxidized wine. And uh, reduction, it's the reverse. You can usually reactivate a reduced wine by bringing oxygen but a wine which is oxidized is dead you cannot come back to reverse if one end of oxidation is vinegar what is the end of reduction for wine it's really a smell like a gummy smell i would say something which is not expressing very much and you need to waken up if you freeze your food, for example, you have less smell, and it's a little bit like that. Uh, well, I'm not an expert, to be fair, so uh, maybe people would argue what I'm saying, but in a way is that you're shutting down part of the potential of your wine when it is reduced. And uh, the expression is uh, lower and uh, less uh, explosive, I would say. So uh, you have the feeling that the wine could say more. And so this is why a very reductive wine is something which really is not very interested, of, of course. So, But there are wines we tend to have that reduction by themselves. And sometimes some winemakers are looking for a very slight reduction. So it's a specific objective from certain winemakers to have some reductive characteristics of their wines. I know a very big champagne company where it's part of the style to be on the reductive side. So it's really a choice. In terms of the wine, do you feel that there's a DM signature? Is there something that's common to DM closures? People say when we use DM, the wine is neat. And they say it's more flourish, more expressive, more fruity. And do you think that there's any chemical reason behind that perception? No, it's uh, really linked to the fact that the closure is very closed in this case. And it's linked to the fact that the closure, one closure to the other, we have the same consistency. You know, the traditional industry of cork has done a lot of improvement in terms of taint risk. They have reduced them quite a lot. Still there, but it's not zero. But I think that the next question is the consistency. And this is a key point because here, consistency means Structure, so means potential migration, transfer of oxygen. And then you have a different impact on the wine. You are modifying the profile. It doesn't mean that it's negative. It means only that the wine profile may be different from one bottle to the other. Maybe you will have a different profile because the cork is different. And this is something which is 
less and less acceptable for the wineries, especially for the premium wineries. And this is why we see people looking at our solution. And uh, this is new. What regions or what groups of people have been most receptive to DM? Do you see sales differences in different parts of the world? Yeah, in the first years, clearly the region where they had a huge cork taint issue were the first to switch. We then see that region where we have more fragile wine, it's easier for them to switch to DM, Burgundy, Italy, region where they are exporting a lot. Italy again, you know that. Italy is exporting high volumes, high value of wines in the States because also of the Italian community, Italian restaurants everywhere. So what does the closure market look like globally? We tend to say that for the steel wines, so white, red and rosé, there are about 18 billion bottles per year that are bottled and sold. Between 10 to 11 of them are made with cork about three with synthetic cork, and the remaining volume is screw cap. Screw cap is growing, growing pretty fast, because screw cap is a cheap solution, easy opening, and so this is something which grows quite well. There are some difficulties, is that the bottling is a little bit more difficult. You need some good skills in terms of managing the bottling line, and it's difficult to have a lot of flexibility in terms of design, of the, the closure itself. You know, it's not easy to have very short runs. Synthetic used to grow quite fast, but now it's pretty stable, mostly on entry wines, highly rotating wines. And within cork, there is a big revolution, which is when Diam came in that market with a solution which was stain-free, it really made a big change. And obviously, there are other companies now marketing microstructured cork with different cleaning systems. Although they are a little bit less efficient, they have their place on the market and they're probably more than 5 billion. So about the half is our microstructured cork. And the other half is still traditional punch cork for one part, but there are also different technical cork with big granules, disc, well, there are different solution, but they are all losing shares. And I believe my feeling is that within the next five years, there will be still part of traditional punch cork because of the image, you know, tradition, etc. This part will probably be reduced. And I foresee that microstructured cork could be eight to nine billion cork worldwide. So the business will be simplified, less companies because you need a lot of money to do investments. It's more a technical world than it used to be, with guarantee, with, uh, you need to be make sure that uh, the materials you are using are food compatible. You need some know-how to run such highly automated uh, and processed factories. And so it, the accessibility is lower, but it's going to a more reliable solution in the future. Because the patent for DM would become public after 20 years, right? Yeah, so in 2020. So there are still other two years, and then it will be open to public. And I expect that, in fact, because of the success of that technology, one would expect that other company would do the investment. Not very much because it's a quite expensive investments, but they will. There's a cost barrier to entry. There is a cost barrier, and I would say also a level of know-how. 
because uh, when you start such a factory in the beginning, uh, you need to set it up and it takes a few years. You need to have skilled people. So, for example, for producing a billion diam quark, you need an investment of about 60 million euros. Diam will still have a, a big advance. And we are continuing to innovate. We recently launched a new quark called Origin by Diam. The difference with the traditional Diam is that the polymers, instead of coming from the traditional oil industry, they are all biosourced, meaning that instead of using oil in the beginning of the chain, we are using castor oil, so uh, a bio-based vegetable sourced oil. And we have replaced the microspheres with an emulsion of bee wax without depending on the oil industry because we all expect that oil industry will decrease, not now obviously, but probably in, in the next century. There won't be enough to do all the polymers that humankind is developing. So there are more and more biosource solutions on the development. And what have been challenges on the sales side? I mean, I imagine in a world of wine, sometimes people are attached to certain ideas for a long period of time and they don't always encourage change. And so what did you face when you... We've, we had to face actually two, two challenges. First of all, the company actually was not owned at that time by Oneo. It was a company owned by a local French family and they did a lot of damage on the business. They had a lot of cork tent issues, pretending that it was never their cork, only it was a fault of the, the wineries, etc. So we had to make customers forgetting that part. So we, we had to apologize about the past and saying, well, we find a new solution. This is a solution. And uh, I remember, well, it was an expensive solution and the company was not very healthy at that time. Hopefully we had shareholders that were involved in that business because actually that company merged with a cooperage business. And I'm mentioning the company Sogamoro, who was owned and still now owned by the family Herriard Dubreuil, a family from Cognac, who also operate in spirits business because they own Rémi Cointreau. And they were there during these difficult moments and accepted the challenge to put more money on the table to try to save that business. One of the brothers, François Herriard Duvail, is a winemaker. So uh, he has attended to some testing and we demonstrated, showed him that we could do something. And I told him as well to Mark, his brother, that we should stop marketing all other solutions and just focus on that business. They said, well, Dominique, let's try to do it and become the CEO. That's the way they gave me the job. <laughs> so we had to do it. And uh, in the beginning, it was very difficult, to be fair, because we had to convince wineries that we were a different uh, company with a new process. And so we offered them to do trials. And very, very quickly, they saw that there was a difference. So we progressively gained their confidence and they said, well, looks like an interesting thing there, so let's go on and let's purchase some volumes. And obviously they were asking us a huge number of guarantees because they were, they were a little bit uh, scared and uh, not sure that it would work. But now uh, the product is sold since uh, more than 15 years and we haven't had any issue in terms of cork taint and uh, people know that. And now it's 
quite easy to sell. Microstructure cork had an image of being low-end corks. And we said the reverse. We said, no, no. Because it's microstructure, it can be consistent. Because the granules are clean, it can be taint-free. So it's a reverse. It's a premium cork. It takes time to change mind. But people were also very much fed up about cork taint, to be fair. The challenge is to have the iconic wineries switching to the arm, to have them really deciding now we have to go in that direction. So we're still not there. We are on second wines. We are on iconic premium wines in Burgundy, but not in Bordeaux. So there are some areas where we still have to work to be done. Dominique Tornex sees the benefit of consistency. Thank you very much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having inviting me. Dominique Tornex, the CEO of DM in the south of France. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. The balance, the osmotic balance between the closure and the wine will take three months, four months. So people believe that tainted cork may contaminate the wine years later. That's wrong, totally wrong. A tainted cork, which is having one, two, three nanograms, will taint the wine within the first two months. The important period is the first month. So then you have a balance. So it means that the quantities which can migrate from the cork won't migrate anymore because you have what we call a pressure balance between the two components, the liquid one side and, and the structure of the cork itself. So I would say that maybe a bit more taint could migrate, but not very much. You can taint very quickly. If you touch with your finger an extract of TCA, it takes time before you, you get it out. You can wash it with soap. It's still uh, smelling, so it's really sticking and so it's very, I would say, quite a terrible molecule. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how yeah, terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Does it do anything good, TCA? No, 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 nothing special.